0: Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. Happy New Year. This is my first podcast of the year, 2021. And let's just all hope that it's a beautiful new beginning. You know, we're on our way with mindfulness and thoughtfulness, and let's let's just try to look out for others and ourselves equally. And so this week on the podcast, we are coming to you again from Brooklyn and from across the ocean in Italy. So I'm very excited for my guest, who is Miss Sala Elise Patterson. So she's a writer interested in stories that reveal untold truths, highlighting unsung heroes and celebrating hidden beauty. She began her career as an editor at Condé Nast Traveler magazine and has since written about culture, current events, travel, and lifestyle for the Atlantic City Lab, T, the New York Times Style Magazine, Harvard Design Magazine, Kinfolk, Folk, the Ford Foundation Report, and many, many others. She is a serial expatriate, a true global citizen we have here with eight countries and five continents under her belt. She's a linguist, she speaks five languages, and Sala brings a cross-cultural perspective to every story she writes. And folks, there's much, much more which we'll get to in our conversation. Sala, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very so, much. I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's jump right in. Tell us more about where you're local and what inspires you. Great. So where am I local? I think. And where are you from? Let me add that to. You. Where are you from? Sure. Where are you sure. from? Well,
1: I was going to start there. I mean, the first place that I feel like I'm a local in is Washington, D.C., which is where I was born and raised and lived for the first 18 years of my life before moving to New York to go to university at Columbia, where I studied African-American literature. So I would say D.C. and New York are my founding local places in the world. But I'm currently living in Rome. and This is my fourth time around living in Rome. I'm married to an Italian, so I feel very much a local in Rome as well. And then the final place I'd say I feel local is in a very small town in the northeast of Brazil called Jijoca de Jericoacoara. Ooh, that's a beautiful name. <laughs> what does day. it mean? That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly tied to the native language from you know the area, but I don't know what it means. And and there are different. Actually, I've heard different stories about what it means. There's not you know complete agreement around that. But it's a very small town, about six hours north of Fortaleza in the state of Ceará. That's where I met my husband, who was running a bed and breakfast and a restaurant. On the border of a huge lake in the town, and we spend as much time as we can there as well. So, those are probably the four places where I feel most local, although I've lived in a number of other places and sort of feel like a a faux local
0: (laughs) in a number of places. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. So, I already mentioned that you're a writer. So, tell us more about your craft. So that's a great question. I think it's
1: changed over the course of my career. Um, As you mentioned, I started off writing for Condé Nast Traveler magazine. So, you know, a glossy magazine working in Times Square, very much driven by the tastes of advertisers and, you know, sort of mainstream cultural ideals and perceptions of what's relevant. And I have to say, I learned there how to be a good researcher and reporter, you know, the economy of words and ideas, a very kind of sort of craft-like approach to journalistic writing. And then over the course of my career, I sort of, you know, moved to working with international agencies, which I'm sure we'll get into a bit more, and writing and talking about social and economic and political development in countries around the world. And so became much more of a technical writer, I suppose, if you will, in the context of that work. And then more recently, in a kind of third chapter of my life as a writer, I have begun writing a lot more about art and culture I'm in the intersection of art and culture and political and social critique. So writing about people and institutions that sit at this intersection between activism and cultural and artistic expression.
0: Okay. Okay. So you mentioned that you're kind of in the development space now. So let's get into that just a little bit and how you came to transition from working for, you know, a mm-hmm. multinational publishing house to working in the development space.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I was in New York September 11th working at Condé Nast Traveler and, you know, woke up in the morning and voted and then got on the 2 train from Brooklyn to Times Square and came out and, you know, we all know what how the story goes and I was heading into my third year I think at Traveler and I was getting a bit tired of writing about sort of luxury properties. I mean, it was a fa- it was a fabulous job. And as I said, I learned quite a bit about craft of journalism there. But I was beginning to tire of this sort of endless, being on this sort of, you know, kind of hamster wheel of consumption, of luxury experiences that just didn't really, you know, have much to do with the life that I was living on a day-to-day basis and my values. And then September 11th happened, and I really felt like, you know, I want to be on the right side of history. I want to be working on, you know, issues that matter to me politically and socially and economically. And so I decided to go back to graduate school and get a master's in international development. So okay. I went to London and got a master's in at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And then it was actually not as easy as I would have hoped to break into the world of international development. Everybody said, "You're a journalist, you know, you wrote for magazines, you know, what do you have to offer?" I think the industry, the development industry has come a long way since then. And everybody wants to have journalists on their staff as storytellers. Everyone understands the power of a great story, but it wasn't the case when I was making that transition in 2003, 2004. But I finally got a job at the UN and started off kind of working as a writer and editor um, in the media department at the UN in Rome. And then from there sort of, you know, bounced around the world from Rome, I went to Tunis, where I worked for the African Development Bank. And from Tunis, moved to Paris, where I worked for OECD at the Development Center, which is a small think tank within OECD that looks at development issues. And then from there to Tanzania, where I worked for UNDP, I was the communication advisor to the head of the UN in Tanzania, and then became a freelance consultant in uh, 2012.
0: Okay. So interesting. Interesting. So, That you mentioned the differences between what the sector was like when you first started and where it is now. What are some other aspects that you are noticing that have changed in the time that you've been working in the various organizations and in different perspectives? Because I'm thinking... You said ADB, African Development Bank, OECD, which are, these are kind of very different organizations. So, and then UNDP, which, you know, we, in the UN in general. So what are some of the differences between those organizations and your cultural experience working within these organizations?
1: Yeah, it's true. Every institution has its own internal culture that really defines it. I have to say that on a very personal level, I found working for the African Development Bank incredibly rewarding. Just thinking a bit about where I'm from and where I'm local. I mean, I grew up in Washington, D.C., in a very vibrant, Black Washington, D.C., with a very, I would say, Pan-Africanist, Pan-Africanist mindset in my household from very early on.
0: Mm-hmm. What part of D.C. did you grow up in? In Northwest D.C., in a neighborhood
1: okay. called Crestwood. It was called kind of informally the Gold Coast because a lot of the Black professional class settled yes. in yes. that part of Upper Northwest. Yes, um, that's kind of by the park. Exactly. Exactly. I mm-hmm. big park. And so working at the African development banking, working at the bank so early in my career was a fantastic orientation for me in the international development space, working inside, in, I mean, an institution that was led by Africans, that was geared towards development on the continent, which was, you know, where I saw myself dedicating the bulk of my energy and where I continued to, even when I moved to institutions that were not solely focused on the continent and so that was a very important orientation for me in terms of understanding that there were, you know, there's this cohort of African people working on behalf of the continent. This was a viable and powerful institution, incredibly well funded, with a lot of really brilliant people working inside. So then going someplace at like the OECD and working on development issues within that institution and seeing how those issues, how development was viewed by these Mm -hmm. countries was also an incredibly enlightening experience and very much seeing the world through an economic lens and a very particular model of economic development as well, right? Mm -hmm. Which was also very interesting. And then moving to UNDP in the country. So those two jobs, I mean, the ADB was based in Tunis and Tunisia was a recipient of its funds, but the bulk of the work was in sub-Saharan Africa. So in some senses, it was a kind of headquarters Um, Okay. Office job Mm -hmm. at the same for OECD, but moving to UNDP in Tanzania at Dar es Salaam, I really was the first time I was working for an international agency in a country that you know the entire work of the agency was dedicated to that national context. And working with the local governments, working with local NGOs, you know, being an active member of the community in this country, it was a very enriching and different experience from the sort of theoretical headquarters-based perspective that I
0: had. Mm -hmm. Got it. So then how did you find yourself transitioning to being your own boss? So you're Mm -hmm. working with these big organizations and it's, you know, very enlightening experiences. But so how then did you place yourself to be able to, to get work and stay employed? working for yourself in this space?
1: That's a great question. So the decision to move to a consulting setup was driven by a personal issue. My father became very ill back in Washington, D.C., and I wanted to have the flexibility to go home. I didn't want to move back to Washington, D.C. I wasn't ready to go back home quite yet after having been out in the world for so long. But I did want to have the flexibility to go there when my parents needed me and stay for long stretches of time. And so to be honest, I didn't think that much about what it meant, about what that transition meant, but it went quite smoothly because I think I was only tested in the context, you know, of being sort of self-disciplined and being able to manage my own time and my own workspace once I left UNDP, once I left full-time employment. But it turned out that I had all of the kind of, you know, hardware necessary, you know, mentally to be able to manage my own work. And so the transition went quite smoothly. I mean, I reached out to all of my former employers and said, hey, I'm on the market. And so from day one, I was actually very fortunate to have more work that I could take on. And that was the case for the better part of a decade. And I really enjoyed the flexibility of working on different projects within different organizations. I became a bit of an organizational expert as well, just understanding a bit as I talked about the difference the internal culture within these organizations and building that into the strategy consulting work that I was doing with them. So at that point in my career, I was doing to that point, and I was not just doing editorial work. I had moved into more strategic, strategic planning, content development, creative content development. So towards the end of my time at UNDP, I was getting much more into that kind
0: of work. And that's what I continued doing as a consultant. Okay. Okay. So you just differentiated yourself in a way that created a great currency, for Absolutely. The work. I mean, I yeah.
1: felt that the writing and editing was a bit downstream, you know, it was a bit limiting. I mean, by the time mm-hmm. the work came to me, the framework was already determined, could you please produce this? Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to intervene at any level and say, is this the right thing for us to be producing? Like what format should this thing take? Should it be a paper? Should it be something that lives on the internet? Should it be a conversation? Should it be an event? Should we do it in collaboration? I mean, those convers those decisions were made. Elsewhere, and I realized that I wasn't able to plug in and to be as valuable as I felt I could be if I was staying in this very downstream junior role. or The way writers and editors are right.
0: seen. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you're back in Rome again. Yes. So tell us. <laughs> so tell us how did you come to be living and working and playing where you are living now? So after
1: you know, as I said, almost a decade working as a consultant, I was contacted by one of my former clients, and she had been tapped to run a project at the World Bank office here in Rome. And she said, I need somebody to come and run the communications program. Would you be interested? And I wasn't really thinking about a full-time role, but I wasn't not thinking about a full-time role. I mean, it's quite difficult. Mm -hmm. It's quite exhausting being a consultant. True. Very true. And it just never stops. I mean, I I didn't have a vacation in a decade, to be quite honest. But my family, my husband and my son and I, we had been thinking about a move back to Europe from Washington, D.C., which is where we were before we were here. And so it just was sort of a confluence of things. And then the opportunity came. I applied for the job and they offered me the position. And then COVID hit. And with all the uncertainty that that brought, I thought maybe this is the time to go inside an institution and just hunker down for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to build a communication program from the ground up because it's a new initiative. And it's a 10-year initiative. And so it's got, you know, a time commitment. And, you know, the team that I work on is small. It's run by a woman. We're an all-woman team. It was just a very unique sort of micro experience within these larger institutions. Sure. And so it ticked a number of boxes and it was a really, in the end, it felt like the perfect opportunity and the perfect way for me to go back inside between quotation marks. Got and it. so it, you know, we moved to Rome in the third week of July and have been here since.
0: Nice. So can you talk a little bit more about the sector that you're working in for this new project? Sure.
1: So, project the initiative is called 50 by 2030 and the idea it's looking at agricultural systems and data. The fact that countries make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of investments in agriculture and they don't really know why or where or how and that's a really mm-hmm. huge impediment to the impact that agriculture has. And as you probably know, most countries in the world that are low and middle income rely disproportionately on agriculture to fuel their economies. And so it's a really important industry for these countries to get right. And so this initiative aims to help 50 low and lower middle income countries gather all the agricultural data that they need to be able to make the right investments and plan and budget appropriately. And so it's a bit of it's an interesting space. It sits in a hybrid space between agricultural development and then sort of data for development, which is a huge mm-hmm. and burgeoning field. And particularly because there's sort of more data produced, I think, in like a day now than there was like in the whole like last I don't know 20 decades before. I mean, I'm making it up, but I mean the amount right. of data that's available. Sure. And a lot of it sits in the public domain, but a lot of it also sits in the private domain. So you know, countries having access to this data at an affordable price. And then being able to make it available as a public good and then being able to use it in policymaking. There's a huge you know, movement within the development sector around all of those questions. So this project sits at the intersection of both of those. But it also deals with very important human development issues like mm-hmm. um, food security, because right. agriculture is a huge piece of that puzzle, and also rural development. I mean, the majority of people... And low and low, lower middle income, and she still live in rural areas or have strong connections to rural areas, even though there's been a huge you know, migration into urban centers in recent history. Anyway, so the project looks at all of those dimensions of agriculture, including the role of women in agriculture and making sure that they're more adequately accounted for and compensated and considered in the context of development, of agricultural development.
0: Wow. Wow, that sounds exciting! That, That's really interesting. That would draw me back into that. Space. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> I really like that. Actually. I really like that. So this is where I asked my guest my global speak question. So you've lived many places and you've heard a lot of different languages. You speak many different languages. So we want to hear what you hear. So this is where I ask my guest to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as global speak.
1: That's really interesting. So if I choose Rome, mm-hmm. I mean Romans have an incredibly colorful incredibly colorful language, which is, you know, the thing about Italy that's just interesting and important to understand is that every region of Italy has its own dialect and accent and way of speaking even though the country's quite small. It's incredibly vibrant linguistically. And Romans have this kind of edge to them. They're kind of gruff and rough around the edges, which is what I love about this city and I love about Romans. And they have this expression, fregarsene, which which is actually a bit vulgar in the sense that it means like to not really give. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I love the expression because I tend to take things a bit too seriously too often Mm -hmm. in the sense that everything feels incredibly consequential to me, which is, you know, I think important in the work that I do. I mean, the work is consequential. I take words very seriously as a writer, but there's a real beauty in not really caring. And Romans have raised it to an art. And so, I mean, of course you have the dolce vita, this expression, which everybody knows it's about Italy and it's true. It's, I mean, life is very, very sweet here and Italians enjoy, you know, tasting and indulging in the sweetness of life as often as possible. Yes. But this, you know, in is also a really beautiful concept, which just says, just like, don't care, just let it go. You know, you come yeah. in that have these conversations with your friends. You're like, Oh, I'm this and there's that. And I don't know where I should, and like, just, just relax. Just let it go. Don't care yeah. so much. And that's mm-hmm. been really healthy for me to embrace and to internalize. I feel like it's helped me to grow as a person. Oh, that's
0: wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Very easy. Let it be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really. Okay. All right. Okay. So I've asked you a little bit about your, how you came to be, but writing, how did mm-hmm. that become your thing? You know, I remember when I was sort of studying, and I'm not sure where I first came across this fact,
1: whether it would have been in high school or at Columbia, because as a part of my African-American literature major, I, of course, took African-American studies classes. But when I found out that at a certain point, the United States was against the law in some states for Black people to know how to read and write, I understood how powerful words are. Mm-hmm. And how powerful it is for me as a Black woman to be able to express myself, to be able to take in knowledge, determine what I wanted to take in and take it in through reading, and then to reinterpret it in my own words. And that to me felt like in some sense is the greatest act of liberation and resistance at the same time. Okay. And I also just love the meditation that's involved in writing and figuring out what it is that I want to say and how it is that I want to say in order to do justice to the subject, Mm -hmm. in order to do justice to the fact and the truth, and also the poetry that I think exists everywhere. And so Mm -hmm. when I sit down to write, I try to come at it with those things in mind, like what is there to discover and unearth in terms of the truth of the situation, And where
0: is the poetry in it that I can bring to the fore? Okay. Okay. So then how, so that speaks a little bit more to your more creative writing. Sure. And so how have you gone about continuing as you worked as a consultant and, you know, had to kind of bread the butter or butter the bread or what have you. (laughs) So how have you pursued that aspect of your writing and continued to cultivate it? And, and tell us about some of your more favorite works in that, your creative space. Sure. So I mean it's true. I wear two different hats. When I work in my work with the World
1: Bank and these international agencies, I am very much writing on behalf of the institution and writing with an institutional voice. I mean, there it's not important for people to know that Salah's writing as much as it is important for them to know that the initiative is aiming to do this, has done this, has had this impact. So I wear a very institutional hat and I have a very institutional voice in that context. But I have my sort of freelance writing on the side, which I think taps much more into head and heart than my day job writing does. And that I keep very sacred and very much apart. And I'm very picky about the assignments that I take on. I pitch and that I accept assignments from um, because that work really feels important to me in terms of this liberation and resistance work, this sort of soft liberation, resistance work that I do through my writing. And so, as I said, I, I like to write about culture and art because I think creative expression is where we kind of distill all of the big ideas into very powerful and visceral you know, missives out into the world, sort of pushing back against, you know, dominant narratives and making space for new ones and adding new perspectives and just opening people's minds and their hearts. I feel like there's just such, so much of value and so much that's exciting that happens in in cultural and artistic spaces. And so I tend to write, I tend to enjoy staying in those conversations. I think the pieces that have brought me most satisfaction are those where I found something new in a subject that has already been visited multiple times, or I bring a new subject that hasn't been visited enough or visited in the right way to the table. Mm -hmm. I did an interview with Teju Cole. I think it was last year. Mm -hmm. I loved, Mm -hmm. I mean, even more, to be honest, the writing of the piece, just the interview with him. He's so brilliant. And I had never interviewed someone where I could not have anticipated any of their answers. And interviewing him and writing about him was challenging because he's someone who's been interviewed so many times and so much has been written about him. And so there I was really trying to find the opening. And so that was a fun challenge and I enjoyed, you know, everything from thinking about the questions to ask, to asking them, to writing the piece. I wrote a piece for the New York Times in 2007 that is really dear to me. It's about a dancer, a model, and a dancer from Mm Guadeloupe. His name was Adi Mm Fidelam and she was the lover and muse of the American avant-garde artist Man Ray uh, for about five years between the wars in Paris. And it's a quite long and complicated story, but the short version is I was shown a photograph. My god sister is an art historian. She got her PhD at Yale in uh, portraiture. And she showed me a photograph that Man Ray had taken of this young woman and that appeared in Harper's Bazaar in 1937 and in the September issue. And I sort of did a bit of math and did a bit of digging and figured that at the time, most major American fashion magazines, all American fashion magazines, had a ban against using black models in their pages. And wow. Yeah. And
0: so I so thought this was, was like in the 1950s? 30s 30s, 30s. 30s. Okay.
1: And so I realized that. Um, she must've been the first black model to have been used in a major American fashion magazine. So I pitched the story to the New York Times and they accepted it. And then they commissioned the story. And when I went to research, I realized that there was nothing, nothing had been written about this woman. Mm -hmm. And... Nobody. I mean, she appeared in a chapter in Man Ray's autobiography. People sort of knew things about her. There are hundreds of photographs of her because, you know, he documented their relationship essentially using her, again, as his muse at the Centre Pompidou in Paris. But long story short, none of the biographical information was there. I didn't know where she was born and when, if she had died, and if so, where, and what had happened to her after Man Ray, what had happened to her before. And I just thought, how do you have somebody who is so well-documented in the archives as such a famous artist, and uh, nobody knows anything about who she is? And Mm -hmm. I just thought every other muse, every other significant other of Man Ray's had had books and articles dedicated to her, but this one. And so this sent me down a a long and winding path. I mean, I've been researching her life off and on for the past, well, 15 years, 13 years, I suppose, since that article was written. I started actually before the article was written. Anyway, long story short, writing about somebody who sort of pulling from history, somebody who had been hidden in plain sight, as the expression goes, um, Mm -hmm. is an incredibly rewarding experience for me and felt again, like an important act of resistance to a kind of versioning of history that refuses to see and value the stories
0: of people who look like me. Right. <laughs> right, right. 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 Exactly. And so in your explanation of that or description of that, I, the, the word invisibility continues, just keeps popping in my head. And I often feel invisible just, you know, being in spaces, moving in the spaces that I move as a black woman, as a woman. And so in your career, both writing technically and writing art creatively, have you endured that yourself? And how have you, if you have, and what are your tools, techniques to kind of overcome and combat that? And invisible of me as a writer or? Right. So as a writer, as a professional. So, um, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question.
1: I mean, I think, first of all, you know, making sure, learning over time that I don't become an agent of my own invisibility, right? Mm-hmm. That I understand that if I am at a table, it's because I have earned my right to be at that table like anybody right. else. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. therefore, I need to occupy that space. I need to claim that space. I need to fill that space. Mm-hmm. And As I've gained in my confidence in my career to do that, I think about doing that for young people, young women of color, young people of color coming in my wake in these same institutions. I don't want them to be the first. I don't want them to feel like they have to pave a way that has never been laid before them. You know, Just understanding where I fit in a continuum. People have come before me, the people who come after me and after them and sort of being a bit of a snowplow, right? And clearing space. So feeling confident to be visible and to be seen. Also recognizing that I bring a very different and valuable perspective in contexts where I am the only other at the table Mm -hmm. and making sure that my perspectives are taken seriously, that people will never again be able to conceive of the world in a way that does not include perspectives like my own. Mm -hmm. So just a very small example, I started at Condé Nast Traveler in August of 1999. And like my second week on the job, I was going to the ladies room, which was at the far end of the office. And I had to pass through the art department and they were preparing the photo spread for the millennial issue where they were going to look at the last 100 years of travel through photographs. This is a photo essay of maybe 20 images. And it was all laid out on the main island in the art department. And so I kind of took a bit of a detour and walked around the the island and looked at all the photographs. And there was only one person of color Wow. All of the photographs that they have chosen. And it was a Maasai warrior standing next to a dead elephant with a young white girl who looked like Shirley Temple sitting on top of the dead elephant. Wow. Wow. I went to the ladies room and I came back and I went right in to see the editor in chief. Mm -hmm. I said, you don't know me because I just started here. You interviewed me briefly a month and a half ago, but it's me again, Sala Patterson. I said, you know, and I explained to him, it's problematic that there's only one person of color in the entire spread. Two, that image is a racist and a colonial image. And we're not. And I said, it may never be appropriate to publish something like that. But certainly not in a moment where people still have these ideas about Africa that is nothing more than a safari camp or a game park. We can't go to print with that image And we can't go to print with that being the only image. And his response to me was, well, we weren't able to get rights to the photographs that won't be included anyway, which is to say that there will be no people of color. And so I, you know, wow, I was an an assistant editor. I mean, it's the lowest rung on the ladder, as I said, just starting the job. But I hope that he would never put together a sort of retrospective montage of images again and not take that into consideration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I didn't have the power in that situation to call the shot, but I had the power to let him know that the way you see things is a way. It's not the way. It is a way. It is a version and it is an inaccurate version. It is an inaccurate and dangerous depiction.
0: Wow. Wow. Just 20 years ago. (laughs) 20 years ago. Exactly.
1: Just 20 years years ago. ago.
0: Yeah, so look at where we are now. We're still in a bit of that struggle, but we're, you know, day by day we're doing our thing, we're making ourselves more present and visible. I love your story about, you know, making yourself accountable for taking your stand and letting everyone know that you are present. And that too is my approach most definitely. And that is part of the reason why I have come into the media space to tell stories because that, that is. is one of our most powerful, if not our most powerful, the the sound of stories, the visuals of stories, the word of mouth of stories. I think that really changes our status and our vision and our, our longevity moving forward.
1: And I think the other thing is, Sort of the way that you reduce people, the way you diminish them is denying their humanity, right? Mm -hmm. Denying that they have stories to tell, Mm -hmm. denying that they have feelings, that they have a history, that they have, that they are great. And so for me, if I am entering into a space of, into any space, I'm going to bring with me a sense that you are going to understand the greatness of all the people that I feel I represent, mm-hmm. whether it's a Washingtonian in a certain circumstance, whether it is a black woman in the other sense, whether it is a black American, because even as I travel out in the world, I travel very much out in the world as an African-American. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring that America to you. Right, um, You're going to understand my humanity. You're going to acknowledge my humanity and you're going to acknowledge the humanity of people whose stories I bring and whose experiences I bring to this table. It's not going to be some superficial, one-dimensional rendering of me and my people. You are going to understand us so that you can appreciate us. And I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you have not been exposed to that. And that therefore is why you feel comfortable diminishing me. I'm going to assume that you have not been exposed.
0: Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Wonderful, wonderful. So, speaking of mindsets, this is where I ask my mindset hack question. And so I ask what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? Now, this is one that you can imagine or one that you know of. Mindset hack about anything in particular about my work like so it's anything that helps you get your mind quote unquote right. So it's mm-hmm. something that you know plugs mm-hmm. you into being your best, your highest, your most evolved, your most at peace self.
1: Wow. Well, I think as a writer, sometimes when I sit down to the job of writing, I worry about writing a good piece, and a really good friend of mine sat down and said, "Just worry about writing." Like Don't, you know, trust that you have all of the capabilities to bring the beauty to the page that the piece requires. But if you focus on that, you won't be able to bring it. You're Mm -hmm. focusing on the wrong thing. Focus Mm -hmm. on the craft, focus on the work, focus on the doing, and the goodness will come as a result of that level of focus and dedication to the craft like mm-hmm. that's where the work is it's not about and and just to distinguish that from ambition i mean everybody wants to paint a beautiful painting or write a you know a moving piece but if you focus on that as you're working, it won't come. It will be this very arduous process because you're trying to short circuit it. You know, you're trying to get to the end before you get to the beginning. And so, just sitting, letting myself sit down and just think about what are the elements of the story that you want to tell in what order. Just focus on the craft.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a great one. The more I speak with writers, it really is that just just write, just write, just write.
1: Just write. Yeah. Yeah. Let just your, let yourself, and I think that's the other thing that, again, as I sort of progress in my career, I realize that having the space and the courage to write is something that I've worked to own and earn over the course of my life. Like I definitely did not feel that when I was writing in my twenties, and now that I'm in my, my mid forties. I feel like I can see the, the progress that I've made in carving out space and being sure. unapologetic about that because sure. I write in a very different space. I can hop on the work and do the like communication strategy work, you know, without a whole bunch of like drum roll and throat clearing. But when I sit down to write, like it's a very sacred space, it's a very separate and special space. And creating that and then feeling the courage to sit down in that space is something that I have had to work to feel comfortable with. And I'm still working to feel comfortable with because to be honest, my voice has evolved over time as I have evolved over time. It's still not where I would love it to be. I'm still trying to earn more courage with my voice, but I can recognize at the same time that I have certainly come a distance, but I'm, I'm you know, completely committed to moving even deeper into that and being even more committed to that
0: hmm So do you write only in English?
1: I do. I do. Okay. That's really interesting. I mean, the only language I've studied is French. And all the other languages that I speak, I've learned because I've lived places. So I um, speak Portuguese because of my time in Brazil and really actually learned to speak French and speak French well from living in Paris um, and then living sure. in Tunis. And then Italian, obviously, from living in Italy and being married to an Italian, but have mm-hmm. never studied Italian. So I don't have a grammatical command of languages. Okay. okay. Enough to write in audio. Them. Uh-huh. Got and it. Auditory. Very functional. Very, I mean, I commun- I'm a communicator. I love communicating. And so that language acquisition has come from a sheer desire to be able to exchange with the people that I am sitting next to or walking down the street or interacting with in the shop or falling in love with or whatever the case may be. Right. I also spent a year in Japan living in a very small town in the mountains of Japan teaching English and learned to speak quite well, as a matter of fact, um, in my time there. Mm-hmm. Again, just completely, I had a teacher who became a very good friend and we used to do writing lessons. But I mean, my language acquisition was
0: more speaking than it was sure. writing and reading. Sure. Which is kind of the way of learning language. <laughs> it's the best way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Way. So do you dream in any other languages? Oh yeah. I mean, I definitely dream in Italian. Because I mean, in our little, you know, family, new you kids, all the time. We, we speak mostly in Italian. I mean, I speak to my son exclusively in English, but I speak to my husband only in Italian and my husband speaks to my son in Italian. So okay. in dinner table, if you will, like the language that dominates is Italian, regardless of where we are in the world. Sure. And when I lived in Paris, you know, for long stretches and was working much more in French on a daily basis, I definitely dreamt in French. Okay. And we kind of have this you know kind of language that we developed in our little family because my husband has two older daughters who are half Brazilian and okay. we are very close with them all I mean our family is very close with my husband's ex-wife's family so I'm very close with my husband's ex-wife's mother all of her brothers and sisters I mean we are like one you talk about a blended family we're like right right <laughs> we have moments where we are all thinking and doing everything in Portuguese. And there may be like words of Portuguese that slip into, you know, dream experiences as well, sure. depending on what's happening. So
0: yeah, I do dream in other languages. Definitely. Wow. That's so fascinating. Yeah. So when I'm in Ghana, I don't speak any of the local languages well enough, but I, um, after, you know, a month or so I start to dream in, what I'm hearing. So even though I don't understand it fully, somehow in my dreams, I understand it because I'm functioning. So I always like to ask that question when people speak many languages. And there are also words that you
1: that exist in different languages, that don't uh-huh. exist in any other language and that capture and right. perfectly. Right. And so you steal that and it becomes a part of your like, you know, your native tongue in some ways, like saudaji from Portuguese. Like there's nothing like Saudaji in any other language that I uh-huh. speak. And uh-huh. so that has become a part of my English lexicon, if you will, in some ways. Okay. Okay. So what is the sentiment
0: of that, Saudachi?
1: Saudanji is a kind of longing. It's like a sweet and painful uh, um, longing. It is a, a sort of full body experience of the lacking of somebody or something that is so overwhelming and so painful and so sweet at the same time that it just consumes
0: you. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really beautiful and very Brazilian Sentiment. sentiment. Yeah, yeah. I find that there are so many cultures that are so romantic with those kinds of mm-hmm. like very emotional words or sentiments that somehow miss, I want to say, a lot of the Western yeah. Western languages. Because I think there are similar types of sentiments in African languages, the tonal languages, that just feel like they're just more embedded in emotion than in linguistic, you know, artistry, so to yeah. speak, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Words that exist that aren't really used because they don't have the same cultural importance. You know, when I was in Japan, it was a long time before I learned or heard the word no. Because people, a lot of people don't say no, but they say things like, you know, it might be difficult or possibly, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the sort of, you know, bruteness of the word no and the definitiveness of it and the sort of closed office nature of no is not really approach the Japanese people tend to take to life in general. Sure. A kind of Softness and an unwillingness to be so cold and closed off and definitive about something, mm-hmm. um, and maybe not even to be so transparently yes or no about something. Like you know, like, right? Like a the no time. side, not as much on the yeah. yes side, but on the no side for sure. It felt like almost like a bit of a taboo. And I was in a very small town in a very 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 traditional very, very traditional setting. And so it took me a while. I mean, I moved from New York. I moved from Harlem to (laughs) a small town in the middle of the mountains. And my first job out of university was teaching English in this small town in Japan. And so it was the first time that I, I already spoke French at the time, but it was the first time I came across a culture that was so vastly different from my own and that didn't reference any of the other culture's Mm -hmm. that I had ever come in contact with. And so the acquisition of the language there became also a cultural study in a way that... Other languages, you know, French acquisition hadn't, even though I had lived in Cotonou before then and spoke French in Cotonou and had lived in Paris also for a semester abroad at Columbia and traveled to, you know, Martinique and Guadalupe. But it was just such a off-the-radar cultural experience, linguistic experience, that I somehow spent a lot of time thinking about how those two things intersect
0: for the first time in my life. Sure. Sure. Very interesting. Wow. Yeah. So... Speaking of writing again, who are some of the writers that you have, you know, hold dear and near to influencing your writing or just that you love to to return to and, and have experienced in your, your life? Hmm. Well,
1: I certainly am a diehard fan of James Baldwin's and particularly because I started off being very much a kind of Francophile and just having this obsession with France when I was in high school. And so he, of course, just embodied this You know, African American who was deeply rooted in all of the important and timely political and racial conversations in the United States and contributing to those, but very much, you know, oriented himself towards a sort of French way of living and being at the same time, but never abandoning either sort of world and discourse. And I imagine myself trying, you know, kind of having that duality as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's also just a brilliant writer. Mm-hmm. And obviously a writer like Toni Morrison, the poet Rita Dove. I just finished an extraordinary book of short stories by Edward P. Jones called Lost in the City, which are all set in Washington, D.C. and mm-hmm. all celebrate daily life in the Black community in Washington, D.C., in an incredibly poetic way. I'm thinking about other writers, sort of journalists who's writing, Siddhartha Mitar, who, mm-hmm. if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, writes, covers culture for The New York Times magazine. I really like his writing. Nayama Sandy, Sophia Sandy, she's also a writer and curator whose work she's a new voice who, I think, adds incredible amounts of perspective to discussions of contemporary art. Let's see who else. Oh, man, there's so many writers. I think also I appreciate voices who, you know, voices that have a certain swagger to them. I mean, voices that have been traditionally marginalized, women, people of color who step into and own the language and create their own way of expressing themselves that is so powerful that it can't help but be heard and read and consumed and appreciated. Mm -hmm. I just, I love that. I love that heft. I love that courage. I love that power, that power.
0: Sure, sure. Listeners, these are great show notes this episode once again. So all of those writers and their publications will be in the show notes as well as more about Sala's work. And so Sala, we're getting to the end of our conversation. (laughs) It's so nice. I, I love conversations about writing because I love to read. And it's just always very interesting to see where people have come to their craft in that space and how they maintain their own sanity and their creative expression and all those things. So I very much appreciate that. So before I get to my last closing question, would you say that you're a watcher or a listener? Oh, has to be one or the other. <laughs> no, so basically I'm, I'm wondering, what are you watching these days? What feeds you from the eyes and from the ears? Oh, I see in that sense. Wow. I think I'm more of a listener. I've been
1: listening to since we've been... And as, as I was talking with you a bit before, in a semi-lockdown here in Italy, we don't have a TV in our house. We haven't had a TV since our son was born, which now with laptops and streaming doesn't really mean that much. I mean, it right. just means that we don't consume as much commercial and commercial television as we would with the television in the house. So we do a lot of listening, a lot of listening to music. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite thing to do is put on FIP radio. FIP. F-I-P. Uh-huh. And uh, it's a French radio station. That is broadcast live in France, but it also streams and they have different music channels. So you can choose the jazz channel or the rock channel or reggae or groove, or you can listen to the live radio. But the incredible thing is that they... In a particular genre, they pull music from every corner of the world in that genre and from every moment in time. So the jazz panel could have somebody who's just put out an album in 2020 to a piece of jazz from, you know, the early 1920s. I mean, it's just incredibly vast. And so... You don't know 95. I mean, perhaps a music aficionado would, but I am constantly discovering new artists on Mm -hmm. Facebook. So that's my favorite thing to do and to listen to because I'm always looking for new inspiration. You asked what inspires me early in the conversation. I don't think I answered that, but music is certainly an important source of inspiration. I started maybe a year ago meditating. And so I am a huge fan of the Insight Timer app and do a lot of listening. Mm Meditations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is also a great life hack. That gets me in the right space for mm-hmm. whatever is on tap. Sitting with myself. And I remember before I started meditating, thinking that like if I couldn't sit for an hour and a half, then I wasn't meditating. If I couldn't transport myself, then I wasn't meditating. <laughs> if I couldn't be like the Buddhist monks, I wasn't meditating.
0: But yeah. I really,
1: just the act of just sitting yes. and stopping is yes. in
0: itself incredibly valuable and curious. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And um, I, you make a very good point about that piece of meditation because, you know, every session is not going to be transporting, but it's just that, again, that quiet yeah. space that even if you're, you know, you still have running thoughts, you're still, because that, you know, that can be a frustration and then people give up, but it's really, you know, it's a practice. So oh, absolutely. Really, you know, absolutely. And, it, and, you know, the more you do it, the more you need to do it. The mm-hmm.
1: more you recognize exactly. when you're kind of spiraling out of a space of, of calm and centeredness that the only way to get right again is to just sit and mm-hmm. clear your mind mm-hmm. or work to clear your mind, recognizing that you are doing something called clearing your mind. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, coming out the other side and just feeling just like cleansed. So I do a lot of listening to guided meditations mm-hmm. and watching what have I watched recently that's really blown my mind? I have to say, I haven't watched anything incredibly gratifying recently. I read a lot. I read a lot of different things, a lot of different formats. I'm a huge fan. My favorite magazine in the world is called The Sun Magazine. It is an, okay. it is an independent, ad-free literary magazine put out, out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Mm. started okay. by this and aged hippie, Cy and it has endured. And they, I mean, it is raw and it is radical and it is just wide open in its consideration of all aspects of the human condition. It is- incredible. Nice. Um, and they give away free copies to prisoners. They, you know, are involved. They do writers workshops. I mean, it's a real ode to writing and writers and the power of words. Um, okay. I like I've that. i so cool. time enjoying the, the sun magazine. I love a great New Yorker feature. I'm a sucker for the New Yorker uh, <laughs> <laughs> and a good novel or a good set of short stories or even sure. guess, some poetry.
0: I sure, sure. Awesome. Nice, nice, nice. I love it. I love it. So Sala, any last words for our listeners from this journey in reading and writing session?
1: I guess I mean my moving through the world has been one of, you know, is one of the greatest joys. I say was because I haven't been able to move anywhere in the last, you know, none of us has been able right. to for multiple months, but has been one of the great joys and one of the great sources of inspiration for the way that I think about the things that I write. And I think you talked about this sort of cross-cultural lens, but I feel like living large and living rashly and living courageously is great lens to bring to anything that you do, but in particular to creative expression. I mean, that's worked for me. I mean, I know that there are people who stay local and stay focused and who write beautiful, open things in that way. So this is very much a personal um, Mm -hmm. perspective, but learning languages in different contexts has given me an ear and appreciation for dialogue, understanding what people are really saying when they're saying what they're saying, Mm -hmm. those type of challenges, reading a culture, reading what's really at stake in a situation. I think travel has been one of the great gifts in that sense. Yeah. and that, you know, I realize that I evolve and I want to continue evolving as a writer, as a storyteller in this act of, of liberation resistance that feels like the best use of my time and my skills, even as I sort of keep the lights on and pay the bills for this day work, which I'm also very proud of because it is at the end of the day working in some senses on hopefully, you know, those macro Those macro issues, but really like understanding the connection between my life and my living and my writing and my consideration of the things that I write about and the way that I write about them. Those, the connection between the two is very important to me.
0: Nice. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much We Thank really having me for these great Hi. questions, making me think
1: about these things. A great <laughs> exercise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially at the end of the year, beginning of a new year, right?
0: Exactly, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're there, we're moving on, we're making new waves and new paths. So let's just keep on doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, listeners, this has been another episode of the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. You can catch us each and every Tuesday with a new episode and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon and always at www.localcitizenspod.com. So until next time, listeners, bye for now.